Section 7 of One Day's Courtship and the Heralds of Fame by Robert Barr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Nat Spratt. Chapter 7 of One Day's Courtship. After Trenton awoke next morning, he thought the situation over very calmly, and resolved to have question number three answered that day if possible. When called to breakfast, he found Ed Mason at the head of the table. "'Shan't we wait for the ladies?' asked the artist. "'I don't think we'd better. You see, we might have to wait quite a long time. I don't know when Miss Summerton will be here again, and it will be a week at least before Mrs. Mason comes back. They are more than halfway to Three Rivers by this time.' "'Good gracious!' cried Trenton, abashed. "'Why didn't you call me? I should have liked very much to have accompanied them.' "'Oh, they wouldn't hear of your being disturbed. And besides, Mr. Trenton, our American ladies are quite in the habit of looking after themselves. I found that out long ago. I suppose there is nothing for it but get out my buckboard and get back to Three Rivers? Oh, I dismissed your driver long ago, said the lumberman. I'll take you there in my buggy. I'm going out to Three Rivers today, anyhow. No chance of overtaking the ladies? asked Trenton. I don't think so. We may overtake Mrs. Mason. But I imagine Miss Summerton will be either at Quebec or Montreal before we reach Three Rivers. I don't know in which direction she is going. You seem to be somewhat interested in that young lady. Purely artistic admiration, I presume. She is rather a striking girl. Well, you certainly have made the most of your opportunities. Let's see. You have known her now for quite a long while. Must be nearly twenty-four hours. Oh, don't underestimate it, Mason. Quite thirty-six hours at least. So long as that? Ah, well. I don't wish to discourage you, but I wouldn't be too sure of her if I were you. Sure of her? Why, I am not sure of anything. Well, that is the proper spirit. You Englishmen are rather apt to take things for granted. I think you would make a mistake in this case if you were too sure. You are not the only man who has tried to awaken the interest of Miss Summerton of Boston. I didn't suppose that I was. Nevertheless, I am going to Boston." "'Well, it's a nice town,' said Mason, with a non-committal air. "'It hasn't the advantages of Three Rivers, of course, "'but still it is a very attractive place in some respects.' "'In some respects, yes,' said the artist. Two days later, Mr. John Trenton called at the house on Beacon Street. "'Miss Summerton is not at home,' said the servant. "'She is in Canada somewhere.' And so Mr. Trenton went back to his hotel." The artist resolved to live quietly in Boston until Miss Summerton returned. Then the fateful number three could be answered. He determined not to present any of his letters of introduction. When he came to Boston first, he thought he would like to see something of society, of the art world in that city, if there was an art world, and of the people, but he had come and gone without being invited anywhere, and now he anticipated no trouble in living a quiet life, in thinking occasionally over the situation. But during his absence, it appeared Boston had awakened to the fact that in its midst had resided a real live artist of prominence from the other side, and nothing had been done to overcome his prejudices and show him that, after all, the real intellectual center of the world was not London, but the capital of Massachusetts. The first day he spent in his hotel, he was called upon by a young gentleman whose card proclaimed him a reporter on one of the large daily papers. You are Mr. Trenton, the celebrated English artist, are you not? My name is Trenton, and by profession I am an artist, but I do not claim the adjective celebrated. All right, you are the man I am after. Now, I should like to know what you think of the art movement in America. 
Well, really, I have been in America but a very short time, and during that time I have had no opportunity of seeing the work of your artists, or of visiting any collections, so you see I cannot give an opinion. Met any of our American artists? I have in Europe, yes, quite a number of them, and very talented gentlemen some of them are, too. I suppose Europe lays over this country in the matter of art, don't it? I beg your pardon? Knocks the spots out of us in pictures? I don't know that I quite follow you. Do you mean that we produce pictures more rapidly than you do here? No, I just mean the whole tout ensemble of the thing. They are way ahead of us, are they not, in art? Well, you see, as I said before, really, I am not in a position to make any comparison, because I am entirely ignorant of American painting. It seems to me that certain branches of art ought to flourish here. There's no country in the world with grander scenery than America. Been out to the Rockies? Where is that? To the Rocky Mountains. Oh, no, no. You see, I have been only a few weeks in this country. I have confined my attention to Canada, mainly, the Quebec region, and around there, although I have been among the White Mountains and the Catskills and the Adirondacks. What school of art do you belong to? School? Well, I don't know that I belong to any. May I ask if you are a connoisseur in art matters? Are you the art critic of your journal? Me? No. Oh, no. I don't know the first darn thing about it. That's why they sent me. Well, I should have thought if he wished to get anything worth publishing, your editor would have sent somebody who was at least familiar with the subject he has to write about. I dare say, but that ain't the way to get snappy articles written. You take an art man now, for instance. He's prejudiced. He thinks one school is all right and another school isn't and he is apt to work in his own fads. Now, if our man liked the French school, and despised the English school, or the German school, if there is one, or the Italian school, whatever it happened to be, and you went against that, why, don't you see, he would think you didn't know anything and write you up that way. Now, I am perfectly unprejudiced. I want to write a good readable article, and I don't care a hang which school is the best or the worst or anything else about it. Ah, I see. Well, in that case, you certainly approach your work without bias. You bet I do. Now, who do you think is the best painter in England? In what line? Well, in any line. Who stands ahead? Who's the leader? Who tops them all? Who's the Raphael? I don't know that we have any Raphael. We have good painters, each in his own branch. Isn't there one, in your opinion, that is way ahead of all the rest? Well, you see, to make an intelligent comparison, you have to take into consideration the specialty of the painter. You could hardly compare Alma Tadema, for instance, with Sir John Millais, or Sir Frederick Leighton with Hubert Herkimer, or any of them with some of your own painters. Each has his specialty, and each stands at the head of it. Then there is no one man in England like Old Man Rubens or Van Dyke, or those other fellows, I forget their names, who are head and shoulders above everybody else. Sort of Jay Gould in art, you know. No, I wouldn't like to say there is. In fact, all of your questions require some consideration. Now if you will write them down for me, and give me time to think them over... I will write out such answers as occur to me. It would be impossible for me to do justice to myself, or to art, or to your paper by attempting to answer questions offhand in this way. Oh, that's too slow for our time here. You know this thing comes out tomorrow morning, and I have got to do a column and a half of it. Sometimes, you know, it is very difficult, but you are different from most Englishmen I have talked with. You speak right out, and you talk to a fellow. I can make a column and a half out of what you have said now. Dear me, can you really? Well, now, I should be careful if I were you. 
I am afraid that if you don't understand anything about art, you may give the public some very erroneous impressions. Oh, the public don't care, hang. All they want is to read something snappy and bright. That's what the public want. No, sir. We have catered too long for the public not to know what its size is. You might print the most learned article you could get hold of. It might be written by, what's his name, Da Vinci, and be full of art slang and all that sort of thing. But it wouldn't touch the general public at all. I don't suppose it would. What do you think of our Sunday papers here? You don't have any Sunday papers over in London. Oh yes, we do, but none of the big dailies have Sunday editions. They are not as big or as enterprising as ours, are they? One Sunday paper, you know, prints about as much as two or three 35-cent magazines. What? The Sunday paper does? Yes, the Sunday paper prints it, but doesn't sell for that. We give them more for the money than any magazine you ever saw. You certainly print some very large papers. With this, the reporter took his leave, and next morning Mr. Trenton saw the most astonishing account of his ideas on art matters imaginable. What struck him most forcibly was that an article written by a person who admittedly knew nothing at all about art should be in general so free from error. The interview had a great number of headlines, and it was evident the paper desired to treat the artist with the utmost respect, and that it felt he showed his sense in preferring Boston to New York as a place of temporary residence. But what appalled him was the free and easy criticisms he was credited with having made on his own contemporaries in England. The principal points of each were summed up with a great deal of terseness and force, and in many cases were laughably true to life. It was evident that whoever touched up that interview possessed a very clear opinion and very accurate knowledge of the art movement in England. Mr. Trenton thought he would sit down and write to the editor of the paper, correcting some of the more glaring inaccuracies. But a friend said, Oh, it's no use. Never mind. Nobody pays any attention to that. It's all right, anyhow. Yes, but suppose the article should be copied in England, or suppose some of the papers should get over there. Oh, that'll be all right, said his friend with easy optimism. Don't bother about it. They all know what a newspaper interview is. If they don't, why, you can tell them when you get back. It was not long before Mr. Trenton found himself put down at all the principal clubs, both artistic and literary, and he also became, with a suddenness that bewildered him, quite the social lion for the time being. He was astonished to find that the receptions to which he was invited, and where he was, in a way on exhibition, were really very grand occasions, and compared favorably with the finest gatherings he had had experience of in London. His hostess at one of these receptions said to him, "'Mr. Trenton, I want to introduce you to some of our art lovers in this city, whom I am sure you will be pleased to meet. I know that, as a general thing, the real artists are apt to despise the amateurs, but in this instance I hope you will be kind enough not to despise them, for my sake. We think they are really very clever indeed, and we like to be flattered by foreign preference.' Am I the foreign preference in this instance? You are, Mr. Trenton. Now, I think it is too bad of you to say that, just when I have begun to feel as much at home in Boston as I do in London. I assure you, I do not feel in the least foreign here. Neither do I maintain, like Mrs. Brown, that you are the foreigners. How very nice of you to say so, Mr. Trenton. Now, I hope you will say something like that to the young lady I want you to meet. She is really very charming, and I am sure you will like her and I may say, in parentheses, that she, like the rest of us, is perfectly infatuated with your pictures. As the lady said this, she brought Mr. Trenton in her wake, as it were, and said, Miss Summerton, allow me to present you to Mr. Trenton. Miss Summerton rose with graceful indolence, and held out her hand frankly to the artist. 
Mr. Trenton, she said, I am very pleased indeed to meet you. Have you been long in Boston? Only a few days, replied Trenton. I came up to Boston from Canada a short time since. Up? You mean down? We don't say up from Canada. Oh, don't you? Well, in England, you know, we say up to London, no matter from what part of the country we approach it. I think you are wrong in saying down. I think it really ought to be up to Boston from wherever you come. His hostess appeared to be delighted with this bit of conversation, and she said, I shall leave you two together for a few moments to get acquainted. Mr. Trenton, you know you are in demand this evening. Do you think that is true? said Trenton to Miss Summerton. What? Well, that I am in demand. I suppose it is true. If Mrs. Lennox says it is, you surely don't intend to cast any doubt on the word of your hostess, do you? Oh, not at all. I didn't mean in a general way, you know. I meant in particular. I don't think I understand you, Mr. Trenton. By the way, you said you had been in Canada. Do you not think it is a very charming country? Charming, Miss Summerton, isn't the word for it. It is the most delightful country in the world. Ah, you say that because it belongs to England. I admit it is very delightful. But then there are other places on the continent quite as beautiful as any part of Canada. You seem to have a prejudice in favor of monarchical institutions. Oh, is Canada monarchical? I didn't know that. I thought Canada was quite republican in its form of government. Well, it is a dependency. That's what I despise about Canada. Think of a glorious country like that with hundreds of thousands of square miles, in fact millions, I think, being dependent on a little island away there among the fogs and rains, between the North Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. To be a dependency of some splendid tyrannical power like Russia wouldn't be so bad, but to be dependent on that little island, I lose all my respect for Canada when I think of it. Well, you know the United States were colonies once. Ah, that is a very unfortunate comparison, Mr. Trenton. The moment the colonies, as you call them, came to years of discretion, they soon shook off their dependency. You must remember you are at Boston, and that the harbor is only a short distance from here. Does that mean I should take advantage of its proximity and leave? Oh, not at all. I could not say anything so rude, Mr. Trenton. Perhaps you are not familiar with the history of our trouble with England. Don't you remember it commenced in Boston Harbor, practically? Oh, yes, I recollect now. I had forgotten it. Something about tea, was it not? Yes, something about tea. Well, talking of tea, Miss Summerton, may I take you to the conservatory and bring you a cup of it? May I have an ice instead of the tea, if I prefer it, Mr. Trenton? Why, certainly. You see how I am already dropping into the American phraseology. Oh, I think you are improving wonderfully, Mr. Trenton. When they reached the conservatory, Miss Summerton said, This is really a very great breach of good manners on both your part and mine. I have taken away the lion of the evening, and the lion has forgotten his duty to his hostess and to the other guests. Well, you see, I wanted to learn more of your ideas in the matter of dependencies. I don't at all agree with you on that. Now I think, if a country is conquered, it ought to be a dependency of the conquering people. It is the right of conquest. I, I am a thorough believer in the right of conquest. You seem to have very settled opinions on the matter, Mr. Trenton. I have indeed, Miss Summerton. It is said that an Englishman never knows when he is conquered. Now I think that is a great mistake. There is no one so quick as an Englishman to admit that he has met his match. Why, have you met your match already, Mr. Trenton? Let me congratulate you. Well, don't congratulate me just yet. 
I am not at all certain whether I shall need any congratulations or not. I am sure I hope you will be very successful. Do you mean that? Miss Summerton looked at him quietly for a moment. Do you think, she said, I am in the habit of saying things I do not mean? I think you are. Well, you are not a bit more complimentary than... than you used to be. You were going to say than I was on the banks of the St. Maurice. Oh, you visited the St. Maurice, did you? How far away from Boston that seems, doesn't it? It is indeed a great distance, Miss Summerton, but apparently not half as long as the roundabout way we are traveling just now. Miss Summerton, I waited and waited in Boston for you to return. I want to be a dependence. I admit the conquest. I wish to swear fealty to Miss Eva Summerton of Boston, and now I ask my third question. Will you accept the allegiance? Miss Summerton was a little slow in replying, and before she had spoken, Mrs. Lennox bustled in and said, Oh, Mr. Trenton, I've been looking everywhere for you. There are a hundred people here who wish to be introduced, and all at once. May I have him, Miss Summerton? Well, Mrs. Lennox, you know, if I said yes, that would imply a certain ownership in him. I brought Miss Summerton here to get her to accept an ice from me, which as yet I have not had the privilege of bringing. Will you accept the ice, Miss Summerton? The young lady blushed as she looked at the artist. Yes, she said with a sigh. The tone was almost inaudible. The artist hurried away to bring the refreshment. Why, Eva Summerton, cried Mrs. Lennox, you accept a plate of ice cream as tragically as if you were giving the answer to a proposal. Mrs. Lennox said afterward that she thought there was something very peculiar about Miss Summerton's smile in reply to her remark. End of chapter 7 End of One Day's Courtship